I am here with the authors of the book, Three Minute Therapy, Change Your Thinking, Change Your Life, Dr. Michael Edelstein and Dr. David Ramsey Steele. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to be here. My pleasure. I just completed your book yesterday, and the book is just a wealth of practical exercises that people can use to think realistically about the things that beset them. It allows them to, I don't know, take control of their own experiences, to sort of short-circuit some self, self-built self repertoire of dysfunctional beliefs and actions. And I think it gives readers a sense that they can own their problems and subsequently sort them out if only they take an honest look at their preferences and a critical look at beliefs about what's causing them trouble. So let me just lastly explain to listeners that you've embedded these what you call three-minute exor- uh, therapeutic exercises within the framework of REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, which was developed by Albert Ellis in the 50s. So I would like to hear from each of you what your basis is for becoming advocates of this model or writing about this model. But before we even get to that, um, well, one of you or both of you tell me, what is REBT? Uh, maybe give me the the 10,000-foot view. Well, REBT stands for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And as you mentioned, Zach, it was developed by Albert Ellis, a pioneer in the field in the 1950s. And since then, it's spawned many other similar kind of therapies, usually called cognitive therapies or cognitive behavioral therapies um, that are very popular these days. And the basic premise is a very powerful one, yet a simple one, which is that our actions and our emotions don't come from events themselves, whether past, present, or future, but it comes from our thinking, our views, attitudes, beliefs, what we tell ourselves about ourselves, others, and situations causes our emotions, not what they do. Well, as I mentioned, I'm interested to know a little bit more about how each of your backgrounds coincided or cohere with this philosophy and how each of you came to be involved with REBT in the first place. Um, David, maybe you could start since we haven't heard from you yet. Well, I became involved really um, when uh, I collaborated with Michael on this book. I'm primarily a writer. I write about all kinds of topics, political, social, and so on. Um, and um, I learned most of what I know about REBT from Michael when we were working on this book. Since then, I've read quite a bit about it, um, but that's how I got into it. So, Michael, a bit about your background as a professional and how you came to co-author this book and how you how you came to collaborate with David. Uh, well, my background started when I was 17 and I was depressed most of the time, anxious the rest of the time, procrastinating. I was on the verge of being kicked out of college because of my procrastination and other emotional problems. And I started uh, in therapy first with a psychoanalytically oriented therapist who was very nice and uh, accepting, didn't criticize me, uh, but I didn't get any better in between sessions when I had these problems I mentioned, all I could do was look forward to the next session when I could tell him about the problems and he could say, well, how did that make you feel? Mm. Or tell me more about it. Uh, uh, So that was very, that wasn't helpful at all. And then I heard, I, I went to a lecture given by Albert Ellis and he was fond of criticizing psychoanalysis and therapies related to psychoanalysis and all his criticisms made sense to me. So I immediately ended with my psychoanalyst and started seeing Albert Ellis and that dramatically changed my life. And uh, I started to sort of in an offhand way, use these REBT techniques on friends and relatives when they mentioned problems. And I enjoyed the process because there was a lot of debate involved and thinking about our thinking, which was fun. So I decided this was the field for me. And And then as David said, uh, we met and uh, 
I was looking, I'm not the greatest writer. Uh, so I was looking for someone to collaborate with who could put these ideas in an interesting, engrossing way. And David was just the person. And uh, David is responsible for making the book interesting. Otherwise, it just would be dry theory. So uh, that's how we started to work together. Uh, subsequently, we co-authored another book called Therapy Breakthrough, for which uh, David was the main author, and I supplied psychological and therapeutic uh, information to David. He wrote that one. You know, I love, and I promise this will be the last diversion from the practical concepts in your book that I want to get to. I love that you began your book with the quote by Epictetus, what upsets people is not things themselves, but their judgments about things. What does that quote mean to you? Well, as, as I said, uh, that means that you're not dependent on making things better in your life to overcome your emotional and behavioral problems, but the power is within you. Uh, so, so that's the theme underlying all of REBT therapy and uh, it teaches people to take control of their lives rather than to uh, be a victim of other people's words or actions or or situations they find themselves in I practice mindfulness but I do so in sort of a cognitive pursuit I guess you might call it I'm big into the work of Ellen Langer and she's actually the first person who I heard use this quote. And what I liked about Langer, not to, <laughs> I promised it would be the last diversion, but this is sort of another one. What I liked about Langer and her theories of, about mindfulness are that she was she's completely forthright that nothing is magical about what she's saying. Likewise, as authors of this book, the way you speak to the reader, I think it's clear and you're forthright in the articulation that while the exercises you're talking about can be done in a short amount of time that neither REBT nor your proposed exercises or anything like a silver bullet or a quick fix or a magical cure for one's life problems. So with that in mind, will you tell me about three minute therapy and what it is, who it can help and how? Uh, yes. Uh, it's therapy that teaches people uh, a scientific method to identify the thinking that causes their problems, their emotional and behavioral problems, and then question and challenge this thinking, look for the evidence for it. It's roughly based on empiricism. And, uh, and if you don't find evidence for it, in fact, you find counter evidence, then uh, work on reinforcing the idea that your irrational beliefs uh, no longer hold any water and reinforcing preferences and acting on your preferences and uh, REBT is based on the idea that irrational beliefs, disturbance-creating beliefs, mainly come from demands, demands on oneself, others, and situations. So to spell that out, a demand on oneself uh, generally causes anxiety, guilt, and depression. And that starts with, because I prefer to do well and get approval, Therefore, I absolutely must, I have to, and I'm a loser. I'm no good if someone criticizes me or I fail at my goals. Um, and then the second must is a demand on others, which tends to cause anger, resentment, and hostility. And that takes the form of because I would like you to treat me well, Therefore, you absolutely must, you have to, and you're a rotten person if you treat me poorly and you deserve to roast in hell and <laughs> I just appointed myself your roaster. And then the third demand is leads tensely to addictions and procrastination and that takes the form of because I would like life to be fair, easy, and hassle-free, therefore it absolutely must be my way. And if it's not, then life is awful. Life is terrible. I'm going to be miserable forever. So the best I can do is either commit suicide or escape through procrastination or addictions. 
So it's fair to say for a person who frames their life stories around absolutes, a three-minute therapy, and indeed REBT, is a, a useful way to reframe so that people can see life as being something they can explore, as more fluid than, than maybe they've given it credit for being. Yeah, David, do you want to take that one? Well, I, to me, one of the most interesting things about this is that in the culture, there is a prevailing view of psychotherapy and what it can achieve. Uh, and it's mainly uh, false. It's mainly mistaken. Mm. Um, and uh, this prevailing view, which you find in movies, for example, uh, nearly always when therapy comes up, is that there are things that are going on in your unconscious mind that you have no idea about and can't easily get at. And these things started when you were a, a, an infant. Um, and therefore, um, trying to consciously consider uh, the way you're thinking uh, wouldn't accomplish anything. So this is the, this is the dominant view, and we, we call, it comes from Freud, but we now call it the psychodynamic view. Right. And we think that's all wrong. Um, we think that explicit conscious thoughts are very important. Uh, so um, one of the things that, uh, that Michael will tell you as a practicing psychotherapist who sees clients every day is that people come very often with the expectation, oh, you're going to ask me about my dreams, or you're going to ask me about how my mother treated me when I was five years old. Um, and really, from the from the REBT point of view, that's all immaterial and a distraction uh, because um, uh, what really matters is the way you respond to things now. And that's something you have some control over. So REBT sort of uh, gets rid of the unnecessary reductionism or Freudian psychoanalysis or, or metaphysical claims about what a person is and what their goals should be. Right, right. And all the other things that go along with... Um, with uh, that kind of outlook, you know, I mean, one thing that's very popular is that um, uh, if you have a, a problem of strained relations in your marriage, then it must be based on sex. Well, right. it may be based on something completely different that is deleteriously affecting your sex life. The origin of it may have nothing to do with sex. Um, so, but um, so, there, so, you know, Freud had the idea that everything's about sex when you get down to it. Um, and that's really untrue. Uh, so, there are these myths out there, and in our other book, Therapy Breakthrough, we we go into the origins of these myths and um, uh, and how the genius Albert Ellis in the 1950s uh, was able to to free himself from from these um, from these delusions and arrive at a more accurate picture of the way people's minds work and the way they create problems for themselves. There is there is some good news in what you said. Uh, you mentioned that. People come to me expecting me to ask them about their dreams and their childhood. And that was true earlier in my psychotherapeutic career, but it's not so true anymore. And I think the zeitgeist culture is changing somewhat. And uh, you will notice in some movies when there's a scene with a therapist, although often the therapist is not very competent, they don't discuss childhood as much as they used to. And the people that come to me tend to be more educated in terms of problems and probably have read uh, some of our books or read, uh, heard some uh, videos on REBT, and they, they're not really expecting that as much. Yeah, that is good. David, let me make a dubious move here and ask, when you came into this project, now I have a sense that because you're not a, a practicing clinician, that you you were learning along the way did anything leap to your mind as something that you ought to be critical about like it was probably obvious it sounds like that you wanted to avoid reductionist psychoanalysis but did you ever at any point have to question michael about say are we drinking too much of the cognitive rational kool-aid so to speak i think that i think there were things like that but i think i've largely forgotten them now actually actually one of the things about our about three minute therapy as a book is that uh, at the end there is, or near the end there is this um chapter in which we answer common objections and be, because uh, three minute therapy which is you know the sort of popularized version of rebt uh, encourages people to ask questions 
uh, it, it encourages debate about um, whether REBT is true and whether it works. And, you know, if, if in many cases, like a client will say, well, it hasn't worked and um, uh, that's because REBT doesn't, is, is false, but there may be some other explana- explanation for why it hasn't worked in this particular case on this particular occasion. Um, and um, so, so the whole book was written actually in this, in this uh, very much aware of the fact that uh, the reader would be have a critical mind and might object to certain claims. So um, th- that's. But I, I can't actually remember now. Maybe Michael can remember, uh, but I can't remember some of the objections that I actually sincerely held at the time. But I did hold some. Yeah, I did. I do remember one, David, and it was a very good one. And I don't think I had a very good answer at that time. And that is, I think you asked me something like, how do I know that these people are getting better? Not because the theory is right, but because either they want to please me or there's a placebo effect or it sounds good or things like that. Right. Or or, or the possibility that anything that distracts them. Uh, might be good. <laughs> yes, and right. I don't. I don't recall how I answered. I don't think it was as good an answer as I have now. And that is, since those early days, uh, there's been a lot of studies and research on this, which are comparing it to other methods, and uh, which shows that the that the REBT and cognitive behavior therapies tend to be more effective. In fact, there was a uh, famous study with depression comparing uh, uh, cognitive behavior therapy with a medication. And the findings were that they they did equally as well, the uh, the therapy did as well as the medication, but once the person stopped taking the medication, the good results tended to fall off and they tended to revert back to their depression. Whereas with uh, changing their thinking and changing their outlook, that uh, benefit them far beyond uh, a short period of therapy. So medications, to, at least for issues that you're tackling, are they can serve as a stopgap, but don't necessarily hold true throughout the course of one's life. Yeah, a caveat there is sometimes people could continue taking the medication for the rest of their life. So it doesn't mean that if they're on meds, it necessarily means they're it's only going to help them temporarily, but it probably only will if they stop the medication on some at some point. But there are individual differences. There are some people who uh, stop the medication and and through the medication, they've learned to take risks, risk failure and uh, to change their philosophy somewhat. So uh, they do OK afterwards. That's that's like an interesting implication about what it means to be a helpful therapy. You mentioned the placebo effect. To an extent, insofar as we understand what the placebo effect is, it's not a fake phenomenon. It's the question, I suppose, for a therapist would be something like, how can you turn that seeming power of the placebo effect back to the client so that they can take control of, of that experience? Well, it depends what causes the placebo effect. It seems to me that one factor would be just enthusiasm that there's something out there that can help them just right uh, people having hope could energize them and get them back into living a better life and one of the ways uh, REPT might address that is we teach people exercises that helps them identify the irrational thinking and question challenge and contradict it and these are exercises that often they continue doing after the therapy, they learn to be their own therapist. And just doing something that people think will help them could uh, help them um, take more risks. So that, that could be a, a self-placebo effect. This is sort of a softball question, but it's a good framing for listeners. Do you set goals for your clients or do clients create their own goals? That's an important question because one of the features of REBT therapy is at the end of each session, we do set goals. And at the beginning of the next session, we check on how the person did on the goals and then modify them where appropriate. And normally at the end of the session, I suggest goals to the client based on what they seem to indicate they wanted. 
from the therapy and in their life and also uh, things that I think would be important to reinforce, such as practicing identifying their irrational beliefs when they're upset as a first step. And normally we come up with two or three goals that we collaboratively come up with and that they work on. Talk a little more about that. How do you go about teaching the exercises from this book while also letting clients guide you toward what their goals are? Or in other words, how do you balance and make sure that you're not actually getting in the way of of a person's goals? Well, one of the ways is I initially ask them, how can I help you? Why are you here? So I immediately find out some of their goals. And then my job is to help them achieve their goals by changing the thinking that gets away in their achieving their longer term goals. Uh, so and then the the uh, homework comes from that. So I teach them how their thinking causes their emotional and behavioral problems and then help them identify that thinking. So then it's natural as a goal for them to start practicing that. Or if they say, uh, I'm here because I'm addicted to alcohol and I'd like to stop drinking. So then a natural goal is no drinking this week. So the goals pretty much suggest themselves in in most cases. Yeah, there are there are big goals and there are uh, sub, subordinate subsidiary goals that follow from the big goals. Uh, I think one thing we need to point out is that we don't see it as the as the task of therapy to convert the the client into someone who has a particular worldview. In other mm. words, um, Michael and I are both atheists, but we wouldn't try in the context of therapy to um, undermine uh, any religious beliefs that uh, or theistic beliefs that a client might have. We're not really overjoyed about political correctness, but uh, we wouldn't make a frontal attack upon people who think, you know, like social justice warriors. So there are these worldviews that people bring with them, and it, it's not it's not the job of the therapist to convert the client to um, what the therapist believes is the correct overall view of life and our place in the cosmos and so on. Uh, and REBT can work within the framework. You can reconcile REBT uh, with religion or with any political ideology. It's a, it's a specific technique for dealing with problems that people create for themselves. Yeah, that's a great point, David. I have a client right now who's a Muslim, and uh, he, he had certain obsessions, and he was afraid he would be condemned to hell because he did certain things like he argued with his wife and uh, and threatened divorce and apparently this is against some strains of the of uh, the orthodoxy. Uh, so I did a search on the religion and some philosophers of the religion and I came across uh, something uh, that said something like Allah created you in His image. So what you do is really no reason to blame yourself. Uh, Allah understands and Allah forgives you for your mistakes. And uh, so I was able to use some REBT uh, uh, Islam with with him. And uh, there are a lot of quotes you can take from the Judeo-Christian Bible that reinforces some religious, some uh, REBT ideas, such as let he who is without sin cast the first stone, which indicates that, that we all sin or in REBT terms, we all make mistakes. Uh, so uh, be more accepting and forgiving to others when they do. So you let people explain their current belief system to you and perhaps explain the kind of person they want to be, what Kahneman calls the, the fast and slow thinking. What are your medium to long-term values and what seems to be getting in the way in your view of achieving those things? And you use their own world, you know, you step into their their worldview to use our EBT techniques that might help them align with their values. I think that's a very good way to describe it. Uh, sometimes I work with um, people who are trying to get over their religion and uh, are new atheists. And that's particularly easy for me since I'm an atheist. And so in that case, uh, I don't hold back on criticizing some, some ideas of religion. 
You mean, uh, sorry, you mean new atheists as in recently have become atheists rather than new atheists such as uh, Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris, etc.? Yes, okay. exactly, the yeah. former. I wonder, could we practice a three-minute therapy technique now in real time? I have an example in mind of something I might bring to you as a client. And if it goes south, we can we can cut it out. Of course, but we will bill you for this. I was going to say, I was wondering if this could just be a good way to get wholesale clinical <laughs> advice from you. The way since you're getting two therapists for yeah. the price of one, <laughs> yeah, the bill, yeah, is, the the bill is double. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bill Stanton, please. <laughs> uh, actually, this would be my former self coming to you for advice, but I used to get panic attacks all the time. And I believed wholeheartedly that my panic attacks were something that, 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 be, that were visited upon me, not something I could control. Just something I had to react to. In reality, I am actually no longer stuck in such a belief system. But if I could just play the role of my former self, how might you, via three-minute therapy, help that version of me construct a, a more realistic and, and helpful set of beliefs about my persistent panic attacks? Well, the first step would be describing to you <clears throat> what I already did, where emotions come from. So now you know that your panic attack is comes from your thinking, not from situations. So uh, do you recall the last time you had a panic attack? Yeah, I could say something like just a day ago, I was in my room and seemingly came out of nowhere. Yeah. And to, could you tell me uh, what you were what you were thinking? What went through your mind when you uh, started having the panic attack? Well, I was just sitting watching TV as I do on any other serviceable Tuesday afternoon, but I, th this time as I was watching TV and sort of mindlessly, I just sort of had those physical symptoms that come along with having a panic attack. I see. And uh, how, how did you feel about the physical symptoms and what were they? I was terrified because my heart was racing. My throat felt like it was closing up. My, my arms were numb. It just felt like a whirlwind of, of symptoms I couldn't control. I see. So one of the things you were telling yourself was, I can't control these symptoms. That's true. Right. And how did you feel about that, about your presumed inability to control your symptoms? Yeah, I suppose I exacerbated the problem rather than did anything to relieve it. I was sort of acting in a panic. How did you exacerbate the problem? By telling myself that I had no control over it. Yeah. And uh, so as long as you say to yourself, I can't control it, I can't control it, this will last forever, presumably, then that will get you to be anxious and create more panic. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, my former self would always concede that point and then want to backtrack to, um, but then how the heck did it start to begin with? Oh, uh, that's a good question. And the answer is often they could start physically where you just have some strange feelings or you feel a little dizzy or a heart starts racing. Those things happen to people for no apparent obvious reason. And then you observe that and then you started thinking, I'm having a panic attack. I can't control it. <laughs> and then the more you dwelled on that, the more you created it. Right. And we could go down this road for a long time, but I think you did it well there. The principles apply and the way that you got me to understand to say to you that there was, you know, you, I, you got me speaking until a moment that I could tell you which parts of my reality I did or did not have control over or what my beliefs were. And that is how I ultimately, I came to realize that when I was having these, these bouts, as soon as something happened that, that smelled or looked or, or seemed like it could possibly be a rumor of an anxiety attack, well, that's what happened because I, I willed it to be so. Yeah. And also, I didn't tell you you can control it. I just asked you, uh, how do you know you can't control it? Right, so right. Uh, so I try to get the client to learn to question their beliefs rather than telling them why their beliefs are wrong. Unless they're stuck, then I'll tell them why their beliefs are wrong. And why, as David was saying, why is it so much more powerful, as I, I believe that it is, for somebody to self-identify or, or talk through these problems to the extent that they can on their own rather than you imposing a solution on them? I, I think the use of that is that if they learn to identify and question their beliefs on their own, then they're on the way to being their own therapist and doing it 
on their own moving forward. So uh, I think that's one benefit. But I won't waste a lot of time if they're I what I would have said to your former self, if you didn't come up with anything I could use, then I would suggest some things you might be telling yourself that uh, hundreds of other people having panic attacks have told me, such as I'm losing my mind and I can't stand it, or I shouldn't be having this panic attack, or I must know why I'm having it, or I have to be over it by now. Some of those musts and shoulds and absolutes and demands that people in your former self situation tend to uh, uh, think. And then usually pretty quickly they would say, no, not, no, I haven't been thinking that. Oh, but that I've been thinking. So, uh, mm. so usually they identify pretty quickly when I suggest some irrational beliefs to them. So I'm not phobic about telling them, suggesting to them what they might be thinking a whole array of things, and they had what's most meaningful to them. When I was in my early 20s, I had some panic attacks, and I later reconstructed what I think helped to cause these panic attacks. Um, Prior to having panic attacks, I became concerned that I was having a sometimes experiencing a feeling of being cut off from the world, was how I put it to myself. This was mysterious and inexplicable, and and it worried me. And the more it worried me, the more I started thinking, oh, I'm going to get that feeling of being cut off from the world again. This is pretty bad. What does it mean? You know, I can't explain it, and it's something that just happens. And so I gradually got more and more panicky about, about this feeling. And then eventually the panic attacks lost contact with this origin, and it was just a panic attack. What I now think, looking back, or this this is a conclusion I came to a few years later, is that this was due to the fact that my eyesight was becoming much less efficient than it used to be. Uh, I'd never ha- I'd never worn glasses, and I always ha- prided myself on my excellent eyesight. And after this episode of the panic attacks, I um, one day I noticed that a, this was in England, in the north of England, in the early 1970s, I looked at a bus that was a few hundred yards away and I couldn't read the number on the bus. I couldn't tell what number bus it was. And I thought, my eyesight must have deteriorated. So I went and had my eyes examined. He went to, went to um, an optometrist and he said, well, look at that chart over there. And and I said, what chart? Chart? <laughs> oh, that little, Who said that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that little gray blob on the wall. Yeah, that's a chart. Uh, but anyway, uh, I got glasses um, and what I can say is, um, whether this conjecture of mine is correct or not, this cut-off feeling never returned. But I'm, I'm now of the opinion that it was due to the fact that I was aware in, a, in an indirect and confused way of the fact that I was cut off from the world because I couldn't see th- things so sharply. You were able to refocus your thinking to something that you could control rather than something that was just terrifying and... and, and yeah, I mean, I got, I got over the panic attacks before I, I made this conjecture oh, okay. about, what, about the, the, the eyesight I relation. And that was before I'd come into contact with REBT as well. But, but the thing is, I now think that, they, that people have some slight change in their physiology. They're dimly aware of it. Uh, they don't know what it is, and, and they, don't, they don't understand it. And it makes them start thinking, oh, this is a strange way of feeling about the world. And Mm. um, therefore, they start to worry about it. And when that feeling uh, comes back, they say, oh, it's coming back again. And maybe it's worse than last time. And maybe it's going to take over my brain and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, you start having all these um, uh, thoughts. And of course, um, uh, part of this is uh, one one of the things in REBT is the idea, the demand for absolute certainty. You know, so like if, if, if your heart starts beating a bit irregularly, you, you, I must have an absolute guarantee that I'm not going to drop down dead of a heart attack in the right. next five minutes. Well, right. of course, nobody has that. Uh, life is full of, <laughs> full of surprises, some of them unpleasant. And um, uh, there, there are no absolute guarantees. But so that's that's part of it that I must have this absolute guarantee. I must know I must know precisely what's going on. And often that's very unreasonable. Yeah, I had, I've had a couple of clients who had that exact thought and they went to one cardiologist after another to find out what was wrong with their heart since they didn't have an absolute guarantee 
that uh, nothing was wrong. And the cardiologist would say, there's nothing wrong. Well, they left thinking, well, he said nothing's wrong, but I don't have a guarantee that he's right. He could be making a mistake. So they go to another cardiologist <laughs> to, to get another opinion. But as, as David, as you're saying, as long as you are demanding a guarantee, then you'll never be happy because uh, you're never going to get one. Right. Or there's circular reasoning involved where you've, your uh, your whole approach to healthcare is centered around finding someone who will tell you the answer you want. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. By the way, is it fair to say that REBT is somewhat of a core philosophy and that once you have a, a good feel for that, then you have, you know, something like your book where you can you can then apply these this REBT philosophy through exercises to tackle problems across domains and maybe the 3-minute therapy is a more direct and specific approach? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Zach, about a core philosophy. And uh, in the new revised expanded edition of three-minute therapy, we added uh, a section on comparing REBT with CBT. And the main difference, as I see it, is REBT presents a core philosophy, one of no gods, no devils, no uh, world-ending scenarios, and no bad people. Mm. Uh, that's part of the absolutes, that if someone acts badly, that makes them a bad person. They're a jerk, they're an idiot, those kinds of things. But uh, that doesn't exist. All we have is, are people doing things, and some things that they do can be evaluated as good or bad, but that never magically turns their essence, their being, their personhood, their humanness into ba a bad person or evil or anything absolute along those lines. So will you distinguish between that sort of philosophy and understanding and maybe longer sessions you might have with a, a client or a person and these short applicable exercises that you've, that you've listed in the book that adhere to the theory? That's right. If you do these exercises and change your thinking, then you really are adopting a new philosophy, a new worldview, one of unconditional acceptance, unconditionally accepting yourself with your flaws and limitations as just an imperfect human, unconditionally accepting others with theirs as imperfect humans, people who act poorly but are never magically turned into poor or bad people, and the same with life. Life is never 100% bad. Uh, life, there's no evidence you're going to be miserable forever. Even people who, who I work with who at first are deeply depressed do get some enjoyment, some pleasure out of life, even though often there might be little pleasures. Uh, so it's more of a philosophy of advantages and disadvantages not all bad or all good. Yeah. I was saying that the philosophy itself would be an inroad to being able to use these exercises, but actually you seem to be saying that conversely, it could be that doing these exercises could be an inroad to adopting the philosophy. Usually it works that way. Yeah. So can you just give me a, a brief example of how you can condense something like this to a, a person's problem to a three minute exercise or an example of one of your three minute exercises? Yeah. A, th a three minute exercise is, uh, normally in the form of a, a, a flow chart, A, B, C, D, E, F, sort of chronologically ordered out and alphabetical. And A stands for an activating event. So let's keep on the topic of panic attacks. A is I'm having, um, my heart is racing, my head is spinning. Um, that's the situation the person is experiencing. And then B is your belief about the activating event. And then B, as we were saying, could be something like, I must have a guarantee I'm not having a panic attack. It would be awful, terrible, and horrible if I was. And then C um, uh, is, a, is un, un, uh desirable emotional consequence, having a panic attack. So A is the symptoms, B is I must not have a panic attack, and C is the panic attack. And you see that B, the belief causes C, the emotional consequences, 
it's not A. A is an activating event. A is an influence. And there are all kinds of influences in our life that can't cause us to be emotionally disturbed. But it's B, our belief about it, that does. So that's the first part of the three-minute exercise, diagnosing the problem. And then we go on to solving it, at least in theory. And D is disputing or questioning the irrational belief where you uh, become a lawyer and you just look for the evidence. What is the evidence? I must have a guarantee. I'm not having a panic attack. How would it be awful, terrible, and horrible if I was? Then E, effective new thinking or effective new philosophy. Uh, there's no evidence I'm having a panic attack. Uh, there's evidence I'm having symptoms but not a full-blown panic attack. Uh, it would be unfortunate if I did have a panic attack and very, very uncomfortable, but not the end of my world. I wouldn't like having a panic attack at all, but I definitely can stand. I can bear what I don't like. I did have panic attacks before, and, I'll, and I survived, so I'll probably survive this time. And it's not the symptoms themselves that are forcing me to get very anxious and panic, but rather it's my irrational must thinking about it that's causing my problem. And with practice, I can uproot my musts and unconditionally accept discomfort, racing heart, feeling woozy, although I'll never like having those symptoms. And uh, then that leads to F, a new feeling, which would be concern, displeasure, discomfort, disappointment about these symptoms, but not panicking. And then I would give the client uh, the suggestion that they write out those three-minute exercises on a regular basis for reinforcement, repetition, review, going over it again and again and again, as long as what we came up with at E makes sense and is meaningful to them, it will start to uh, get internalized. And a, and a view of discomfort, discomfort, physical or external, is never awful, but just uncomfortable, and they'll survive, they can stand it, and live through it. So thinking about REBT itself, are there limitations? David, do you have... A well, I would say there are obviously uh, limitations. I mean, if someone informed me credibly that I was going to be shot in five minutes' time, I would uh, probably feel... Um, a great deal of fear, and I don't, um, I don't know of a way to make that go away. So uh, I would say there is a there is a limit on how much you can, um, as a practical matter. Um, maybe Michael will disagree with me, but I would say there's a limit on um, how you can adjust your thinking uh, so that the world doesn't perturb you. I would put it a little differently, and that is. The, a limitation of REBT is it, it's not a magical solution or a silver bullet. It's nothing <clears throat> that uh, sometimes you can do in the moment, especially in extreme situations like this one, uh, that, uh, that will necessarily change your emotion from anxiety to just great concern. But in the long run, with most people, most of the time, they can dramatically improve. Maybe not to the extent if uh, they're faced with imminent death, they're not gonna make themselves anxious unnecessarily. But in major problems in their life, they, uh, they can dramatically improve with deep longstanding anxiety or panic attacks or addictions. Uh, this uh, can be very, very helpful. But another limitation is it does take work. It does take practice. It's not like taking a pill. And there are people who don't want to do the work and they just want to take the pill. So, so they keep the psychiatrists in business, not the psychologists. So that's another limitation. Uh, and also speaking of pills, another limitation is uh, if someone has a severe psychotic type disorder like bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia, normally, unless they're on some medication first that stabilizes their thinking somewhat so they can focus on the cognitive part and think about their thinking, normally if they're not on these meds and it's hard for them to concentrate on this and, and be regular in their practice of writing out the exercises. 
how about three minute therapy exercises? I, it sounds like you're making a distinction between, first of all, you're talking about some sort of psychosis maybe, and and if people are already, especially if they're already taking medications, and that that's what they use to to um, get themselves in a space that they can think clearly, well then maybe REBT sans medication is not going to be the best way forward. But aside from that, there seems to be sort of a, a long-term, short-term distinction. So you might not use REBT to de-escalate a person, but it, it might be more clearly implemented or more obvious that it would be implemented in some sort of a, a life problem or, or a longer-term problem. Yes, and uh, once people learn the approach, then sometimes in some situations they can remind themselves that it's, okay, I'm having a panic attack, but it's not awful, it's not the end of the world, I'll recover, so they can sort of do three-second therapy and uh, get themselves out of it. So sometimes if they understand the philosophy, they can use it in, in the moment also. Where does moral luck come into play? For instance, if there is a person who lives with the conditions that we might all agree, for the most part, are not sufficient to be thinking through problems rationally on a regular basis or maybe as regularly as somebody who was uh, afforded the ability to have maybe the, uh, you know, the, the resources and skills to be able to think something through. Would you change the way that you do three-minute therapy or would you not use three-minute therapy for one person and use it for another? Uh, yes. If, if someone is uninterested in looking at their thinking and they just want to work on behavioral solutions, then I would just suggest practical or behavioral solutions. And I, I'm glad you brought that up, Zach, because I did want to mention that although REBT leans, leans heavily on the cognitive part, uh, incorporating behaviors also uh, in with the cognitive part is important. So, for example, if you have a fear of public speaking, it's important in addition to identifying and contradicting your beliefs to push yourself to do public speaking and see in action that the roof doesn't cave in if you stutter or stammer or block out or people start throwing rotten tomatoes at you. Uh, or if you're afraid of rejection, in addition to the cognitive part, the three-minute exercises, it's important to risk rejection and, and ask someone out on a date or uh, go for a job interview, those kinds of things. So, so those are important aspects of REBT as well. Do the life circumstances or history of a person that they bring to a, a clinical session weigh on the kind of therapy that you might give them or the kinds of conversations that you might have with them or... Or on, does it really weigh on your decision whether to use this approach or not? It may weigh on their preferences. Right. So someone okay. might prefer a certain aspects of REBT to be emphasized because of influences in their past. Uh, so I, I'll go with that. But I don't think that there's any way of predicting by giving someone a questionnaire about their life what's going to work for them and what's not. You would think that this is sort of scientifically oriented. So artists, creative, very creative people who don't really uh, relate that much to science or math, those kinds of things would not uh, do well in this. But I've had some very creative people. Uh, I had a well-known artist who did fabulously well with this and other people in the arts. Uh, I also had someone who was a professional astrologer do well with this. So, uh, so you never know what uh, who's going to be helped and who's not going to be helped. That's Sorry, told them their problems weren't in their stars. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I did like that about the book. And actually, I saw just watched one of your interviews where the argument was posed to you. If I were going to say it in a nutshell, yeah. But what about genetic predisposition? And your answer was basically, uh, what about it? What am I saying that contradicts the f the reductionist the tautological fact that we have a genetic basis to us? What you're saying is that who are you to put a ceiling on what a person can and cannot achieve? You just have a mode of of therapy that might allow them to achieve it. Yeah, and genetic predispositions and uh, abuse abusive childhoods, all these things mm -hmm. are influences, certainly. Uh, we don't pretend they don't exist. They're influences. But the bottom line is what causes your disturbance right now is what you're telling yourself. If you had great parents who loved you all the time, 
Uh, it's what you're telling yourself now that creates your anxiety. And if you had uh, problem parents who were abusive, it's what you're telling yourself now that creates your anxiety. So look at that and uh, change that. And don't waste a lot of time talking about your past or your genes. It's as uh, Stanton and I say in the, uh, our life process program, I think is what you're saying. Your, your past is your prologue and that that's important and we'll never try to change that. But your life story is ongoing. That's right. That's right. But there is a lot more talking that I could do about REBT and your book, Three Minute Therapy, the new expanded edition. Before we go, either of you, anything that you think that my listeners should know about your book or your, the philosophy three-minute therapy exercises that I have not addressed in this interview so far? Well, I did want to mention uh, that there's a website devoted to this approach uh, and the book called threeminutetherapy.com. Three is spelled out, threeminutetherapy.com. And I have a podcast called The REBT Advocates. It's a YouTube channel, soon to be a podcast also, uh, so you could uh, get more information there. And um, also, my website will give you contact information. Uh, David, did you want to add anything? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. David, if people are interested in you specifically, how might people, is there a way that they can uh, find out more about you and your work or things that you've written? Well, I've written, you can see my books on Amazon. My most recent book is a book about George Orwell. It's called Orwell, You're Orwell, uh, which is a reference to England, You're England. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's it's the first accurate statement uh, of George Orwell's beliefs uh, on a whole range of topics, uh, uh, beliefs that are often misrepresented by people who write about Orwell. Well, uh, then in a few months, I have a book coming out that's a collection of my already published articles. It's called The Mystery of Fascism, David Ramsey Steele's Greatest Hits. Um, so, uh, there are other books, but you can find me on Amazon and I've got an author page on Amazon that says quite a bit about me. Great. Yeah. Also, as you mentioned, uh, earlier, Zach, David has a excellent book on atheism and theism called atheism explained. I highly recommend that. I will link to all of those things in the show notes. Dr. Michael Edelstein, Dr. David Ramsey Steele. Thank you for your important work. Thank you for giving me exceptionally valuable tools and concepts from your book. And thank you so much for our conversation today.